0: This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. On a quiet Friday afternoon in late July, both the Massachusetts House and Senate proposed identical bills that would give public employees deemed essential during the pandemic a three-year retirement pension bonus as a reward for working through COVID-19. Undoubtedly, many dedicated public employees, such as frontline health and safety professionals, were required to remain at their jobs, despite the myriad risks posed by exposure to a poorly understood pathogen. However, a closer look at the bill's remarkably brief text reveals neither a definition of essential nor an actual requirement of work, thus making virtually all public employees eligible for the bonus. This omission, sets the Commonwealth up to incur a substantial expense added to its already worst-in-the-nation public debt load. Setting aside the cost of the measure, these bills could unfairly reward all public employees, regardless of position or risk, at the expense of private sector employees who also remained at work to support their families. Are these bills well-intentioned attempts to reward those in the public sector for selfless professionalism? Or are they a closed-door cash grab that betray the public's trust to pad the pensions of public sector employees at the taxpayer's expense. My guest today is Pioneer Institute's research director, Greg Sullivan, who oversees the Centers for Better Government and Economic Opportunity. Prior to joining Pioneer Institute, Mr. Sullivan served two five-year terms as Inspector General of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He was a 17-year member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, serving on the committees of Ways and Means, Human Services, and Post Audit and Oversight. Greg earned his bachelor's and master's degree from Harvard College and Kennedy School, respectively, and a master's degree from the Sloan School at MIT. Greg has written and commented publicly on the proposed pension retirement credit bonus. He will share with us his views on the fiscal state of the Commonwealth, what the bill would cost taxpayers, what voters can do to influence the success of this joint bill, and Greg will also propose policy alternatives that better align with our post-pandemic fiscal situation. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's research director, Greg Sullivan. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaji, and I'm now joined by Pioneer Institute's research director, Greg Sullivan. Now, Greg, this is your first visit to Hubwonk, and I I, I think this is a long overdue uh, invitation. I'm I'm thrilled to finally have you here on Hubwonk. Welcome aboard. Thanks. Now, um, Greg, we're going to um, be talking about a fairly complex topic. We're talking about public pensions and some legislation that was uh, recently proposed to modify it. Uh, but before we get into uh, the, the meat of the topic, for the benefit of our listeners, you've got quite an impressive career uh, in, as a, a legislator yourself and in the executive branch as an IG. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got here today.
1: Uh, well, I've had I basically spent my entire career working in the public sector in Massachusetts I ran for seat in the state House of Representatives uh, when I was a senior at Harvard and I get elected. Mm-hmm. And I served for uh, 17 years uh, in the House. That was really quite an education. I found that the uh, the way that the government works isn't exactly as it is portrayed in the textbooks that I was studying previously. After that, I went to work for the office of the state inspector general, which at that time was about 10 years old. It was created as a watchdog agency for uh, public accountability, the uh, critical uh, self-corrective element of government. And I worked there for 10 years as an investigator and was eventually promoted to be the inspector general by uh, Governor James Swift. I served under Governors Deval Patrick and uh, Mitt Romney. So I, I really got to know Uh, the state government really extensively in that capacity. And then after that, I went to work for one of my true loves of life, which is the Pioneer Institute. When I was in the House, I used to read from the Pioneer's reports. Charlie Baker, our present governor was at that point, executive director, very young man. I was able to work with Pioneer on two separate projects. Uh, When I was IG, uh, having to do with the administration of the charter school system in Massachusetts, which is quite a thing. Uh, but anyway, I've, I I've really lo- love working at Pioneer because it's just, you know, to my view, it's uh, it's really in the public interest. I appreciate
0: that. That's a, a great setup. also say, just as an aside, we are nonpartisan. Uh, um, just for the benefit of our listeners, you were a Democrat in the House of Representatives, and you've worked under Republican and Democratic yes. uh, governors. So you're not um, some fire-breathing uh, uh, conservative who uh, is uh, looking to besmirch the reputation no. of, of legislators.
1: Uh, so. No, uh, I, I, I'm I'm not a Republican. As a matter of fact, um, the first Republican I ever voted for was Bill Weld mm-hmm. when he ran for re-election, mm-hmm. uh, and I voted for Charlie Baker two times. As far as I know, those are the only times I voted for a Republican candidate <laughs> okay. when it All was on right. the ballot. So I'm a Democrat.
0: OK, good. All right. I just want to set the stage there because, I, you know, we, we don't want to uh, give the impression that we're merely critical of a, of a Democratic uh, no. legislation. Um, OK, we're going to talk about um, public pensions. Most of our listeners, I'm guessing, aren't uh, don't have a pension, either public or private. Um, so give us a little bit of background. What do you know about how what the logic behind public employees have a, having a pension? Uh, well, in the
1: 50s, Uh, almost 70 percent of uh, private sector employees had a pension. That number, this has changed dramatically since then. Right now, the the percentage of uh, employees who have a fixed benefit pension, such as the state government has, is down below 15 percent. And so there's been a big change. Uh, Most private employees have gone to, as we know, to 401k. Whereas a fixed benefit pension which we have for, for virtually all public employees in Massachusetts is once you get you, you work, money is taken from your paycheck uh, every every uh, every uh, two weeks when you're paid. And then but if you earn enough, uh, if you earn enough creditable years of service, then you'll be qualified for a pension. Sure,
0: sure. So uh, in the 50s, everybody had a pension. Now we've gone to a place where in the private sector, um, private uh, 401ks uh, have supplanted the public pension. And roughly speaking, a public pension is one where regardless of how the market does and how those investments do, you get a fixed amount that's calculated based on uh, the time you've worked. Yes. Uh, whereas the rest of the private sector, uh, they contribute to that uh, 401k. And if the market does great, um, they have a A healthy retirement. And if it doesn't do as well, they uh, uh, accept the risk of that and perhaps a a less lavish retirement. Okay. So, um, given the logic of a public pension and that it's a fixed benefit and that benefits come regardless of what that money has done since it's been uh, taken out of the employee's uh, paycheck throughout their career, um, you you can easily calculate then how much money uh, the state will ultimately pay
1: into the future for those people who are retiring. Yes, you have that exactly right, Joe. Um, There's a formula that's built into the statute. And basically the way it works is you take the number of years of creditable service that you had. So let's say it's it's 30. Then you take your age. So at age at, at 65, you get two and a half percent for every year that you work. So two and a half percent times 30 uh, would be 75%. Mm-hmm. You'll get 75% of your average highest salary mm-hmm. for the r- most recent years that you worked. So um uh, that's that th- that's the way that it works. And um that that formula um really depends o- a lot on how old you are when you retire. Because at at age 60 you get two percent of two percent is the factor. At age 65 I'm going into the weeds, but but the detail, the details are important in that uh, the bill that we're talking about that's been proposed is going to give the employees extra years of service, three years or three years of age. And that and that's going to really kick up their pensions. So I,
0: I want to get there. I want to get there slowly for the benefit of our listeners. So, a good mathematician could calculate how many uh, employees we have and in, in on the pension, right? How many are contributing, uh, and what their likely payout will be. So we know how much we will owe in the future as as let's say shareholders of this pension or citizens of Massachusetts. We know how much we owe to our uh, public employees in the future. So we have let's call that X. Uh, but also, if we're good at math, we can figure out if the money we've put away is sufficient to meet the needs of X. You've done a lot of work on a pension funding, uh, whether there's adequate money in the pension funds to um, pay out uh, those future retirees. What can you tell us about your research over the years on uh, uh, pension funding?
1: Well, you, you've brought up a great subject. Uh, it, 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 maybe it's, it seems arcane, but it's really significant. Massachusetts uh, state government has $43 billion of unfunded pension liability, and that is calculated by federal standards, A uh, actuary measures, how much is being contributed by the employees, how much is contributed by the state or the employer, and then they say, how much do you need to pay into the future what's owed? When I say that Massachusetts has $43 billion in unfunded pension liability, that means we're underwater. In other words, we we are our our pension fund is dramatically underfunded. So the legislature has been required by law to put in uh, money, cash from the general fund to share its three billion um, to to try to pay that down. They're required to do by law. So uh, that that's that's the picture on the state side, on the municipal side. That's that's the hundred and six uh, retirement systems in cities and towns, counties, uh, independent boards. Um, they also have a forty four billion dollar deficiency. So if you want to if you want to strip away all the details, you can consider that the total unfunded liability of our public pensions in Massachusetts amounts to thirty five thousand dollars per household. Is I think I read in
0: one of your pieces uh, for Pioneer that that thirty five thousand represents um, the largest per capita public debt of any state in the nation. In other words, if we take the number of people in Massachusetts, yes, uh, and the amount of debt, and we divide the debt by the people. We've got the biggest number of any of our
1: uh, uh, fellow Americans. Is that right? That's right. Um, th- uh, th- there's a measure that that takes the total amount of debt per state um, and. That doesn't even count the municipal debt. That's, just, that's the state debt. Mm-hmm. And, we, and Massachusetts is in last place. In other words, we have the, we have the most serious problem with debt. And, it, when, and when Governor Baker was elected uh, about six years ago, almost uh, immediately after that, Standard & Poor's, a bond rating agency on Wall Street, downgraded Massachusetts credit rating. That's a very, very bad thing, very serious thing. Because when Massachusetts borrows money to build a road, to you know, to to build uh, to repair the MBTA, they have to pay a lot more if if your credit rating is bad. So we were downgraded because of the amount of debt that we have. So that's kind of the backdrop uh, uh, in Massachusetts that we we are most overstretched state in the country. Uh, as far as money that we owe
0: okay so th- uh, what I, you can see what i'm doing here greg i'm setting the stage for our the ultimate uh, conversation about the bill itself so i want to recap what you just said we we owe a great deal we actually pay more for owing that we pay a higher interest rate owing to the fact that we've been downgraded as our credit rating so we are a higher risk and therefore pay more just like someone getting a mortgage who has a poor credit score you're going to pay more for that money that you borrow uh, if we run out of money, in other words, we—if that thirty-five thousand dollars each of us owes—is isn't there? We don't belly up and uh, uh, write a check to our uh, retirees for thirty-five thousand uh, dollars. Do they just stop getting paid? Who? What? What happens when uh, when the money runs out?
1: Well, now that that's the question of questions because uh, the pe- people who have worked for uh, the state, work for a city or town, and they've paid in, you know to their pension for all the years. It is theoretically possible for a state to declare bankruptcy, but that's that's never happened. It will be devastating. So that that option's foreclosed, right? We can't just uh, not
0: pay the retirees. So ultimately, I guess this is my way of saying, taxpayers are on the hook, whether it's now or a future taxpayer, right? We ultimately have to pay this money to those retirees. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a matter of if yeah. it's it's when. OK, so I wanted to um, now get to the uh, topic of our conversation. Now that we set the stage, um, we're talking about House Bill 2808. I think there's an attending uh, um, the exact same uh, wording in the Senate uh, bill is 1669. Uh, I want to read it because it's relatively short. And I think the fact that it's so short is actually uh, something that uh, we uh, is cause for concern as well. So let me read section 1. The following words shall have the following meanings. Employee, a person by em, a person by employed by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, its political subdivisions, state and community colleges and universities under the Board of Higher Education and the University of Massachusetts. COVID-19 essential employee retirement credit bonus, 3 years added to age or years of service or a combination thereof for the purpose of calculating a retirement benefit. Notwithstanding any general or specific special law to the contrary, the Secretary of Administration and Finance shall identify all employees who have volunteered to work or who have been required to work at the respective work sites or any other work site outside of their personal residence during the COVID nineteen state of emergency declared by the Governor of Commonwealth Massachusetts on March tenth, twenty twenty, through December thirty first, twenty twenty. So that's the that's the whole bill. Uh, it's remarkably brief and, and remarkably inclusive. So I want to unpack it piece by piece. Um, who is
1: an essential employee by this bill? Well, you you just read the exact wording uh, (laughs) of that proposal. And if it were adopted as is, in the key line, it just says the Secretary of Administration and Finance, that's the governor's top uh, assistant in the government, uh, will determine all employees. So the question of who's an essential employee is really uh, nondescript. It basically, it's basically saying there that uh, any employee who was required to go to work during COVID or who volunteered, which presumably means you volunteered but you didn't go to work but you volunteered, will become eligible for this pension bonus.
0: So, uh, it's, it's remarkably vague in that it doesn't clearly leave anyone out uh, and it makes it fairly easy to qualify in. So, would I be uh, bold in asserting that this might actually be written to include virtually every public employee, from uh, from uh, the essential worker, the EMT rushing to a crime with no uh, no regard for his own safety, uh, all the way to um, the the men's room attendant at University of Massachusetts. Is is this uh, is this
1: everyone? The bill would pertain to all public uh, instrumentalities, which include cities and towns and all of the authorities like Massport, the MBTA. Uh, UMass, the state colleges, all the regular state employees—they're uh, they're the ones who would be covered by it. And as far as who is an essential employee, well, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy to say that if you if you were required to go to work during COVID, you were an essential employee. You know, and though basically, every person who went to work. Would have a claim to say he was an essential employee because he was required to go to work. It's a wide open system. There are more than three hundred thousand public employees in Massachusetts. So, to put it in perspective, uh, you know that's about uh, you know about 300, 000, 300, 000 potential employees who would be eligible for this. And and now we you, you pointed this out, but I want to make it clear.
0: Uh, is there a minimum amount that one would need to work in order to qualify uh, for this? Meaning, you've volunteered. Uh, um, it, this came into effect March 10th, which I think, if I remember, was a Tuesday. I remember it well. We all sort of got these notices that we're starting to close down. So, if you you worked that Wednesday and not another day for the rest of the year, uh, you would essentially have been called into work in the in that
1: time time frame. Yeah, that, that that's been pointed out. Um, Wbur uh, is the first media source that really. Picked up on this to their credit, and uh, that's what they really were focusing on. Saying, "Wait a minute, um, the, the date that the governor put the emergency uh, action on for Massachusetts, uh, people people were still working. In other words, it's very it's very likely that um, that most of the of the employees that would be potentially eligible worked at least one day." And the bill, and the bill doesn't say how many days. In fact, one thing it does say is if you volunteered, but didn't work, you'd be eligible. So presumably, if you worked even one day, um, and this would be subject to uh, litigation, I'm sure, but by people uh, who would say that's what the statute says. You know, I did go to work on this day, and I'm eligible for the bonus.
0: In other words, the state would have the burden of proving that you weren't essential. The employee being the uh, person who has a vested interest in enjoying the benefit of this bill has vested interest in saying, look, I, I, you know, I, I volunteered on the, the Friday, the first Friday of the yeah. lockdown. Uh, I, I also am eligible. Uh, I, I have a hunch that then the uh, the powers that be might just say, look, it's easier just to let everybody who's ever worked for the uh, Commonwealth during that time to to be eligible. Okay. All right. So let's talk about, you, you mentioned a number of employees. Um, I didn't really zero in on it, but obviously the, the most... Um, costly sentence in the um, uh, bill is uh, uh, that the essential employees will have three years added to age or years of service or a combination thereof for the purpose of calculating a retirement benefit. Three years. What does that mean? I mean, if I've if I've worked 30 years, this will be, I will enjoy the pension potentially of having worked 33 years. Is, is that, you know, again, a
1: layman's view? Yes, the n- number of creditable years of service. So they're going to give you three more. That's what this really means. So it increases the amount that you're going to get paid. That's how, it, by, by increasing that example from 30 to 33. I did I did a, a little um, mini study of one particular public employee, which is former congressman uh, and former chancellor of UMass Lowell and current president of UMass, Marty Mann. And Mm -hmm. he's a very highly paid employee. So this is a more extreme example, but this addition of three years to his salary would mean that he would get approximately $790,000 more over his lifetime, than he would have received had the bonus not been enacted. Mm-hmm. Seven, that's one employee. Um, other other employees uh, who are who are making uh, salaries that aren't in the six hundred plus thousand dollar range would would be in many cases uh, receiving a benefit over their lifetime of approximately a hundred thousand dollars. So the the um, the amounts add up. It all depends how many people will be deemed eligible.
0: Mm-hmm. And presumably, Martin will be deemed uh, eligible. Uh, I don't know uh, if he yeah. was. Uh, so whereas our listeners might be thinking of of perhaps very, very worthy uh, public employees, such as a fireman uh, who's risking his life and doesn't understand uh, what the risk posed by COVID, uh, and and yet they show up tirelessly to their work. Many of our listeners are imagining that public employee, but we we should also imagine yeah.
1: You, you know what, Joe, that I, I I'm very glad, I'm very glad that you, you said that, because the the starting point for this bill, it seems to me, is one of goodwill. Um and the the and the sponsors, more than 100 sponsors, uh of members of the House and Senate, they basically, you know, they say, look, uh COVID COVID hit. It was extremely dangerous, uh, and we had to ask people to go out. Uh, you know, police, a great example. You, the police aren't going to stay home in their apartments and homes, you know. And the firefighters, to the fire, don't say, again. can't call it in on Zoom, you know. They have yeah. to be there. That's ambulance, right. mm-hmm. ambulance, uh, right. and people who work at the state uh, medical facilities, such as the med- state employees who work out at UMass, uh, Worcester, where the medical school is located, they they had to go to work and and uh, at the nursing homes, the state employees at the at the uh, at the uh, veterans' homes. So these people, did the legislature say, "Hey, look, we want to do something for them. We want to re- we want to acknowledge it. We want to reward them for their self-sacrifice." And that's the basic intent. Mm-hmm. So I want to acknowledge that. I mean, that's not that's not. Um, you know, some evil idea that somebody came up with. It started with a good idea. The problem is, it costs a ton of money. No, I, I,
0: I didn't set out to impugn the the necessary, the uh, the uh, original motives of the of the bill. Um, but nevertheless, it seems again the reason I read it out loud is it seems deliberately vague and deliberately broad, such that as you say, uh, this would be an enormous expense. I want to get back to that expense and say, if if we have a let's say a, a thirty year career with the state, and we increase that by three uh, three years, we're increasing everyone's pension by ten percent. I'm you know using back of the napkin type thing. Um, that's an enormous number. Um, that's right. That's ha- Right. Ha- has anyone in the legislature? I mean, again, let's let's uh, put intentions aside. Done the math and said, as it's written, what would this cost our taxpayers who are ultimately going to have to foot the bill?
1: Well, the the Boston Herald. Um, has really covered the subject, and so is WBUR. They both asked the legislative sponsors at a hearing on this bill that occurred two weeks ago on a Friday what it would cost, and the sponsors said they did not know. They had not calculated it. So that's the answer. That's a bad answer, by the way. Well, Very bad.
0: A bad answer, an accurate answer. They don't know, um, uh, but uh, it seems that it's a, a convenient dodge because if I'm not mistaken, uh, Greg, uh, legislators would also have their pensions, uh, provided they're eligible, would have their pensions increased. So Greg, if we are looking for a reliable resource to estimate the cost of this bill, who would be a reliable resource? Who Who is in the business of assessing the cost of proposed legislation and whose number ultimately, when it was pre- presented, would be trusted by both sides, the Republicans, Democrats, uh, you know, who, yeah. a number that we could take to the bank, as it were.
1: Yeah, the, the good news is that there is a trusted uh, source for this because the every year the state has to do an actuarial valuation of its pension systems. And they actually calculate it. It's, it's not a simple calculation because you know it depends on the number of years an employee's work, his age, et cetera. But the actuarial the actuaries for the state pension system are the parties who should do the estimate. And if I were, I think the biggest takeaway from this discussion today, I hope, would be that you know, Governor Baker and his administration should direct uh, the state actuaries, pension actuaries, to to calculate that number. It's very easy, and it would. I, I don't. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if if when they came out with the estimate. There will be very few doubters of its veracity.
0: Well, that's good, even though I, again, I don't want to be beat the dead horse, but I assume they're also recipients of, a, of the pension themselves. But we can consider them, though they may have a, um, an interest in the outcome, uh, theirs is a, a reliable source that uh,
1: virtually everyone would trust. Yeah, this would be like the equivalent of having the Congressional Budget Office or the uh, GAO in Congress do the numbers, where they're largely trusted across the board.
0: Yes, having those reliable numbers on the cost of this bill would definitely help in the uh, in the discussion. Now, I want to focus our attention on the fact that uh, I did notice that there's quite a few uh, co-sponsors, many of whom are actual Republicans. So this is indeed not a partisan bill. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats have sponsored the bill. Um, and yet, uh, we've talked about news outlets, uh, BUR, The Herald, The Globe, Pioneer, of course, have all brought uh, brought attention to this uh, this very important issue. Why is it that no legislators have pointed out the weakness of this bill and said, "Look, ooh, this is a lot of people and a lot of money. Why haven't we heard any legislators stand up and object to this vague bill?"
1: That's a that's a great question. Remember, um, so this is a bill that was basically written uh, by a couple of legislators, and then. Other legislators signed on. I know about this uh, idea. So when you're a state center or state rep, they say you get an email and say, do you want to sign on to this bill to give a bonus pension for workers who worked in COVID? Yeah, put my name on it. Um, this doesn't whether this is going to pass into law is uh you know the the indication that there were so many legislators, uh, you know, a majority of legislators have signed on as sponsors of the bill is a good indication that they would have support to pass but once once the total is calculated of what this is going to cost i'm hoping that you know the responsible um legislators there and you know the executive branch will will balk at this because just because it's um it's just so expensive
0: so our listeners don't like to just simply complain uh they like to do something they like to roll up their sleeves and take action now we you know in in the top of the show we talked about that massachusetts already has an unfunded pension system uh that we've established that uh, taxpayers will be on the hook for it regardless of of this magnitude of this uh, unfunded pension we've established that it's a very expensive bill that uh, that is overly broad uh, if our listeners want to communicate their displeasure with the way this bill is written, what's the most effective way to ensure that they reconsider and perhaps sharpen their pencils and and and, and build a better bill that is really going to help those who truly were essential employees uh, who who needed to work during COVID?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's a great question, Joe. Uh, the, the way, the best way for um, a, you know, a private citizen, a voter, etc., to um, have an impact on, on Beacon Hill is to go on dot mass.gov. and there's a link to the House and Senate, and you'd be able to very easily uh, uh, communicate with your state representative or your state senator. That is very important. Also, with the governor's office, um, for them to communicate. You know, I. I Uh, When we we were talking before about the, you know, the police, firefighters, medical workers for the state, um, you know, they sacrificed. But one thing you have to remember is that the people who are going to pay for this, um, many of those people also sacrificed. In other words, people who work for, you know, Mass General, uh, the Brigham.
0: Or the grocery you
1: know, store, community <laughs> hospitals, grocery store, retail store, you know, Uber, uh, right. d- delivering, DoorDash, uh, everybody who was out there, um, th- th- you say, well, you weren't required to work. What well, you were required to work, unless you want to lose your job right. or, or, or stop eating. <laughs> so the problem is that. Um, Very few, very, very few of these people who will be paying for this have a pension. So they're paying a bonus pension with taxpayer money to pay for this. So that's the problem. Yeah, indeed. It's uh, the old, um, the art of politics
0: is taking money from those who don't support you and give it to those who do support you. This is, you know, I I don't want to be cynical about this, but yes, uh, the government doesn't have its own money and we're all taxed by the state at the same rate. So there's going to be a lot of people who are not very wealthy uh, contributing to this um, pension bonus. So we're getting close to the end of our time together. And I really appreciate your time, Greg. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I think some of what motivates these kinds of bills is that the legislature sees itself awash in a great deal of money. Some of it is in higher than expected tax revenues. Fortunately, the, the economy hasn't taken the, the, the hit that we had anticipated last year. And also a, a good deal of money coming from the federal government. I think it's something to the tune of $10 billion that we didn't expect at this time last year. Uh, what do you think? As someone who is a uh, uh, an advocate for using public money wisely, what would you do with uh, ten billion dollars to ensure Massachusetts um, has a, a brighter future for everyone?
1: Uh, if if you ask a thousand people on the street <laughs> what they they should they should spend ten billion dollars on, there may be none <laughs> beside me. Who would say pay down the pension debt? It's very boring. You know, you write the check and, and everything just goes on as it seemed like it before. The sun comes out, you go down the street, except your pension situation's better. But it's critically important to do this. You know, here, here's a factoid to, to keep in mind. By law, the state legislature has to provide this year three billion dollars in cash from the general fund to help pay down this big unfunded pension debt. And there's a schedule over the next 15 years of how much they're going to have to pay in the in the last year. The amount they have to pay is 13 billion dollars in one year. In other words, we already have this schedule to pay down our debt of billions of dollars. And the legislature, you know, the the legislators should should re-educate themselves about the terrible position of our state pension system and how much we owe, you know, before they start adding to it.
0: So if I can make an analogy here, Greg, uh, this is very much like uh, a consumer with a very, very large credit card balance Uh, though it's not fun, really is best served by paying down their balance rather than making new purchases. Uh, The windfall of that decision is they have to spend a lot less in the future servicing that debt and spending money on uh, things they really
1: need. Yes. In other words, this is not going to be a recurring thing, the money from the federal government in particular. That's a one-time thing. And when you have a one-time surge of money that, you know, will not repeat. That's a good source of money to hit at some of our really hard systemic problems. What is our big pension systems uh, are unfunded. Worst in the country.
0: Right. Indeed. Okay, that's a great place to uh, uh, wrap up our show. Uh, I think we had some um, good news and some bad news in there uh, and some constructive uh, ideas for our listeners to do something about. What, uh, what would have slipped under the radar were it not for your uh, insightful uh, pieces, uh, Pioneer uh, and some other uh, news outlets that caught this, as you say, uh, something that was passed on a Friday in the summer uh, and might have gone unnoticed otherwise. So uh, your insight has been invaluable, Greg. I really appreciate you joining Hubwonk uh, to discuss this very complex topic with our listeners.
1: And thanks, Joe. Thanks for all that you do uh, to to discuss such a broad range of of issues and present them in such a, uh, an admirable way. So thanks, you're, you're doing a tremendous job. Thank you very much, Greg.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. Uh, it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes or favorite podcatcher. Uh, if you want to help support the show, Uh, There's several ways to do that. You can uh, give us a five-star rating or offer a favorable review. It's always welcome if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for today's episode or future episodes, you can contact me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.